Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. Testing for the Toxin, the Silent Killer of Church Communities Have you ever heard any of these dreaded statements? How do we apply this spiritually? We need a priest for the youth. You've heard them, but now you're wondering why I've called them dreaded. Isn't the first statement what you've always been taught about sermons? That is, that you pull out the spiritually applicable? And now you're wondering what's wrong with the second statement. Doesn't it seem wise to dedicate a priest for the youth only? The reality is, neither of the two sentiments expressed in the statements above has been effective in the spiritual life of any person. If they have, it is not because of asking the questions, but because of something else deeper that's going on there, which will be discussed later. Rather, Both of these statements show evidence of a toxin that has poisoned our church communities to the point that it has crippled them. This toxin is called utilitarianism. Utilitarianism is a philosophy that defines well-being as the only thing that is intrinsically valuable, and faring poorly as the only thing that is intrinsically bad. Thus, in the words of Rush Schaefer Landau, this view states that an action is morally required just because it does more to improve overall well-being than any other action you could have done in the circumstances. Philosophers call this ultimate moral standard the principle of utility. And you can read more about that in The Fundamentals of Ethics by Rush Schaefer Landau. To summarize this philosophy in plain language, it argues that any action is good based on the result that it achieves, namely, well-being. There is thus nothing good in itself other than well-being, or put originally by its founders, pleasure. Everything else we do is there to please us, but to be good, we should keep in mind the entire community's overall pleasure. This philosophy is seen in arguments such as the following. Legalizing prostitution will bring down crime. Or, legalizing drugs is good because they will be regulated and taxed. Or, premarital sex is justified because there's no one getting hurt. If you notice, each of these arguments is about how an action relates to overall well-being. Every single one of these arguments is utilitarian. Such arguments have infiltrated the church as seen in calling for such things as having simple lessons and sermons, or Sunday school, or limiting options for careers to medicine, engineering, or law, or telling their children not to marry any who make less than $200,000 a year, and so on. Every one of these arguments is based on the pleasurable result of an action rather than any inherent goodness in the sermon, or Sunday school lesson, or career, or marriage. The reality is that such a way of thinking 
is diametrically opposed to the early Christian understanding of goodness. The early church, taking lead from both the Old Testament and the Gospel, and using the scriptures to interpret ancient Greek philosophy, identified three types of good. The good in reference to something else, such as tools for working, clay for making ceramics, or erasers for pencils. If there was nothing else for these things to be used for, they would cease to be good. They are not inherently good. The second type of good was the good both in itself and in reference to something else, such as virtue, education, freedom, and a career. Even if there was not necessarily something else for these things to be used for, they would still in a measure be good in themselves. And the third type of good was the good in itself, such as happiness, rationality, autonomy, and family. These are good in themselves regardless of whether there is anything else they might refer to. We seek these things purely for themselves. Pleasure was to be sought in the things good in themselves. So when, for example, a family sits down for a meal over a table, they are gaining pleasure from the gathering. Yet this pleasure is meaningful in the grand scheme of things. It has to do with who is together and the occasion and the setup. If someone decides to eat by themselves a bag of chips or two or three on the couch, they will get full and maybe even have some base pleasure, but it is meaningless compared to sitting down at a table with a family over a meal. But not only is utilitarianism opposed to early Christian philosophy in its clear distinction of three types of good, but utilitarianism is also based on an anthropology that likens humans to machines, and this owes to the legacy of René Descartes' philosophy on Western thought. Put another way, utilitarianism implicitly sees humans as ghosts in a machine body. Such a radical way of separating the body from the soul revives the ancient Gnostic heresy, which is the most tenacious heresy that reappears across generations in one form or another. If we truly are ghosts in a machine body, then the only real good in life is to feel pleasure in the body. Why not make the most of this baggage that your soul drags along? If you notice, there's a necessary connection between machine-likeness and hedonism. If one believes that pleasure is the only good, then they take a very low view of what it means to be an embodied creature. If one believes that we are like machines, then pleasure as the highest objective is the only reasonable pursuit one can undertake. But this is a very poor and demeaning anthropology. The early church, on the other hand, had a much more robust anthropology that powerfully explains human nature. The human is a composite of body and soul. The body is created in the image of animals. The soul reflects the image of God. But that soul is tripartite, in which we can distinguish three aspects. One, the intellect. Two, the spirited element, and three, the appetites. The intellect, also called the rational soul, is what bears the image of God. This is unique to humans. The spirited element encompasses the specific emotions that move us to act, 
such as courage, enthusiasm, and indignation. The appetites are our impulses or urges, such as the desires to eat, gather with others, and sexual desire. We share this latter aspect of our nature with the animals. For these reasons, the early Christians defined human beings as rational animals. This anthropology has multiple implications for how we should live our lives and how we can authentically fulfill our nature as the rational animal. That is, both a creature like the animals and also created in the image of God. We do that by ordering the aspects of our soul properly. If the intellect is the highest aspect of the soul, then the proper order is to strengthen the intellect to rule the appetites through aligning the spirited element to it. The Church Fathers used the image of the charioteer to portray this relationship between the three aspects of the soul. The charioteer and two horses running in different directions. The proper ordering of all three elements is that the charioteer should rein in the two horses so that they both run together toward a goal. But when the appetites gain control of a person through aligning the spirited element to them, such as in those individuals who live for nightlife, drinking, and sex, then the horses will lead the chariot against the charioteer's better judgment, and they will inevitably crash, destroying both themselves and the charioteer. This disordering is the origin of sin and the effects that it has upon the individual soul. When the charioteer reigns in the passions in order to guide the soul to a goal, then this develops virtues, and the soul is transformed. But utilitarianism, the modern philosophy that has infiltrated the church, destroys the idea of virtue. The actions that we call virtues make no sense in light of utilitarianism, since utilitarianism is all about achieving the result of overall well-being. The pursuit of well-being for oneself and for others is the only virtue in that system. Yet, as you can see from the analogy of the charioteer, by the charioteers reining in both horses toward the goal, this displays and develops the virtues of prudence, courage, temperance, and justice. Justice in the ancient world was about proper ordering, in this case, a proper ordering of charioteer and the horses. Thus, both ancient Greek philosophy and early Christianity identified four main virtues in which all humans could develop if their souls were properly ordered. Those four were prudence, courage, temperance, and justice. But then Christians identified another virtue, which was seen as uniquely theirs, patience. Then Christians also identify three theological virtues, which we develop in our approach to God, faith, hope, and love. But what is the idea of virtue anyway? Isn't it just traits, or even worse, a list of traits, that some people value, such as Christians? No, that is not the case. There is an objective theory of virtue, one that was first articulated by Aristotle in the 4th century BC, which has since regained a resurgence in the West. He identified a virtue as an action that is the mean between two extremes in performing that action. One extreme is excess, and the other extreme is deficiency. For example, 
the virtue of generosity is the mean, or middle, between the deficiency of stinginess and the excess of extravagance. Thus, the mean between the two extremes is virtue. But in order for an action to be in the mean, it has to be done to the right thing, at the right time, in the right way, at the right place, with the right motive, and toward or with the right person. Let me give an example of a sorely needed virtue today, which is a ready wittiness. Ready wittiness is when one is pleasant and amusing others. If one tries to be too funny, then they are buffoons. If one is too serious for any type of amusement, then he is a bore. But if one is right in the middle, then he is pleasantly witty. And Aristotle talked about that more in his book Nicomachean Ethics, Book 2, Section 7. Yet, if they are witty at the wrong time, then this becomes offensive. If they are witty at the wrong place, such as a bank, then it is bizarre. If they are witty simply to show that they are funny, it comes off as forced and arrogant, and thus buffoonery. Thus, in order for a virtue to be a virtue, it has to take note of the extremes of that action and the six conditions above. That is a pretty robust and rigorous theory of virtue and ethics versus utilitarianism, wherein action's morality is dependent upon its result for the benefit of all. Utilitarianism's mistake is that it collapses the three categories of the good into one. It confuses everything. It is sophistic. That is, it masquerades as philosophy for the half-educated. But if you notice, most people justify an action's morality in such ways just like someone would justify allocating money to a specific project in their company, such as modernizing a facility. This philosophy has not only skewed our understanding of morality, but more fundamentally our understanding of our humanity. Think about the following questions, and even try it as an experiment to see how far and deep this toxin has infiltrated the church, and ask those most involved in your church's life to answer these questions. Are we a type of machine? If no, why not? If they answer yes, they're exhibiting the toxin, because the reality is we are not like machines, but machines are like us because we invented them. Or try this question. Are we a type of computer? Again, we are not like computers, but computers are like us because we invented them. Or try these ones. Is language a code? Why did you marry your spouse? Why did you choose your profession? What is the value of education in the church? If everything is about the result and not about inner formation and inherent goodness, then your congregation has been infiltrated by this toxin. An example of how this thinking has poisoned the people in the church is when we emphasize escaping from this world to another, that is, heaven. This is an end-result spirituality, one in which the present life, both a meaningful life and often a church's teaching, is secondary. Yet our Lord Jesus Christ preached that the kingdom of God is within us, according to Luke 17, verse 21, and that it does not come by observation, according to Luke 17, verse 20. 
meaning that it begins and grows inside each one of us. It is not an end result game, but a journey, a life. The reason such a thinking has become so ingrained in the church in the West is because of Western career life and education. In the West, education has only become a training program to prepare people to carry out basic functions required to work such as reading, for the sake of reading reports, writing, for the sake of filling out different forms, and so forth. Schools no longer teach literature and language arts classes, but only teach students quote-unquote basic skills using the texts. And in this, there is no place for developing an appreciation for literature. This is utilitarian. The idea of being graded on a 100-point scale for performance is also utilitarian, and which only began in the 1940s. Before that, grading was based on a four-point qualitative scale for most subjects, which is, as you might have made the connection, the origin of the GPA. The 100-point scale emphasizes completion and competitiveness versus mastery alone. Competitiveness and completion are both necessary skills for Western careers. Now consider this. A student who has attended kindergarten through 12th grade and has not missed a single day will have spent a little over 14,000 hours in school being exposed to this philosophy in the teachers thinking out loud, in the experience of school, and in completing their assignments. I didn't even factor in homework into that calculation of hours. If the same student from kindergarten through 12th grade goes to church once a week and attentively listens to the sermons, which average about 30 minutes, and also goes to Sunday school afterward and spends an hour there weekly, then by the time they graduate high school, they will receive over 1,000 hours of the mind and heart of the church. This is to say nothing of the quality of the sermons or Sunday school lessons. In a best-case scenario, it means that a student's exposure to the church's philosophy is only 7% of the time he or she receives Western society's utilitarian way of seeing and being and doing. I'm not a mathematician, but I can conclude that sermons and Sunday school lessons alone will have a very weak effect on someone's formation. They will almost certainly come out utilitarian when the education process is done. We are talking statistics here. Please don't cite exceptions to the rule. We as Christians are not called to look to the exceptions, but to all. Such students who are corrupted by utilitarianism will come to view church as a means to an end, namely heaven, and any attendance in church as a thing to do, a test to pass, rather than as an integral and beautiful part of the experience of the Christian faith. They will come to see education's only value as to be more effective in ministry, rather than potentially having any type of positive effect on developing the rational soul. They will not see the issue in premarital sex, drug usage, alcoholism, pornography, and rare church attendance. They will call such issues as old-fashioned and outdated. Words that have no reference other than to the quote-unquote more enlightened attitude of the speaker. In short, they will have no perception of goodness in things themselves, 
and the proper order of the different parts of life, or in short, virtue. But that is not where it will end. This is only the beginning. There will be disastrous effects upon marriage, family life, and the community, and that will trickle down to individuals. And if some of you are listening to this attentively, you're making those connections right now with your church communities, especially if you're involved in serving the congregation. In the early church, marriage was partly based on seeing what we love in a person of the opposite sex. That is, the other person embodied something of the scriptures and the history of salvation. But when we think in utilitarian terms, and there is no inner formation of the individuals in the community, and when all are highly skilled graduates in our community, then physical attraction will be the true distinguishing factor for seeking a spouse. And when physical attraction is not there, then nothing. People who lack the looks are ignored like a shoe you are not interested in buying, like a set of Nikes at the shoe section of the department store, which is surrounded by a large group of other styles of Nikes. Such a formation in utilitarian thinking is attacking the ability of our young to marry. According to recent statistics, over 65% of men between the ages of 25 and 35 are not married, and one out of every three young women who attend church regularly are not married by age 30. This is nothing to say about young women who don't go to church or who are not Christians. That number is much higher, something around 50%. This is to say nothing of couples who get married primarily for the reasons of sexual desirability and wealth. Think of the issues that quickly arise when life now hits you in the face and the honeymoon phase is over. Now think about when those couples have children. It will be one fire after another. Who's going to put them out? Our priests have become firefighters when they should have been watering gardens. Yet how can you water a barren land whose soil is not fertile? Have we not yet acknowledged that this toxin has totally debilitated the church? No one should be so delusional as to think that things are going well or have never been better in our churches. They've possibly never been worse with the possible exception of the late 4th through the mid-6th centuries in Byzantium. But it's because we have abandoned the principles which formed the life of the church in the early centuries, which we received from the apostles in their reflection on the life of Christ, and which were further developed to their logical conclusions by the church fathers. We have abandoned those principles from modern philosophies that arose during the period called the Enlightenment, and which are based on highly mistaken premises and bad anthropologies, but which have been readily adopted by professionals who are the most influential in our churches. The result is a crippled church that is acting as a fire department, when in reality it should be cultivating the plants into a beautiful garden built upon the imitation of Christ. But that is the antidote, the recognition of beauty. That will be covered in the next episode, titled, The Health of the Soul on Beauty, Goodness, and Truth. Thank you for listening. 
If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, danielhannawriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books, including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible to spirituality to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.